I'm going to enlist a little class participation in the introduction to the sermon this morning. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you a series of pictures. When the picture comes up, there's going to be one picture on the left, one picture on the right. And when you see these two pictures, I want you to call out to me and tell me which of those things you prefer. Out of the two choices, which would be the choice that you would choose? So, Donald, if you would pill up the first picture for me. Cake and pie. Tell me what you like. Mm. I understand nothing of what you're saying, but it's fine. Go to the next picture, Donnie. Baseball or basketball? Basketball. I'm just going to assume everyone said basketball because that's the right answer. Next picture, please. Oh, is that too... (laughs) Is that too soon? <laughs> Sorry. All right, next picture, Donnie. Finally, mountains or beach? Again, mountains is the correct answer. Now, what I would like to, all of us to recognize here is that we all have biases. We all have preferences. We all have favorites. It usually, and you guys were pretty quick there, when you see a picture of two things that are similar but a little different, we can usually make a very quick decision and say, I like that more. In fact, I was judging most of you for your answers, at least half of you on every question, because according to me, you are very wrong, especially if you said baseball, because it's so long and so boring, and they wear their pajamas on the field. It's just a very confusing sport to me, but basketball is so pure and and vital and full of life. But anyway, moving on, we all have favorites, and clearly I have a lot. And really, in a lot of circumstances, these can be really helpful things. Life would be pretty boring. If we all liked the same things, enjoyed the same teams, enjoyed the same foods, one of the things that makes life so great is the diversity of opinion and the diversity of things that we like. It helps add some color and clarity to our world. Different people have different gifts and different things that they feel passionate about, and this helps bring balance to our community. But of course... Things like bias and preference can also be incredibly harmful things, especially when we use our biases and use our favoritism and preferences and use them for the harm of other people. And when we talk about the church, the church is an incredibly unique place. The church is a diverse place, which is an incredibly beautiful thing, but also has the potential to bring out ugly things in people. And maybe you've been in a situation before inside of a church where you've seen people's favoritism or preference, or maybe even at some time it's been you, even if it's not been spoken, where those preferences have caused divisions and difficulties and fights and even brokenness inside the life of the church. But we have to remember that Christian community is about upholding the dignity and celebrating the diversity of each person. And the church is designed to provide a place for all people to come and to feel welcomed, to feel loved, and to know the gospel. And then through that, to be able to use their gifts and their abilities for the glory of God. And so as we continue through this very short mini-series, through this small section of the book of James, talking about what it means to be truly religious as the Bible defines religion, we're going to look at three things this morning that a church can do that our church can do and continue to do to be a church that is, according to Scripture, a truly religious church, the way that Christ has called us to be religious. And so we're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 7. And this is the Word of God. 
My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to show those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, week after week, we do thank you for your word. And God, today we thank you for your church. In light of all of the the imperfections, because it's made up of people, God, we know that you have created this church, not just our church, but the church with a capital C all over the world, to be your hands and feet in the world, to be a place where people can come and find rest, Come and find your love and your mercy, God, and most importantly, to come and find the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we just pray that as we continue on in the life of Redeeming Grace Community Church, and as we go from season to season and become more of who you've called us to be, Father, we just ask that this would define who we are, that we would be a place where people can Come and find love and find rest. And most importantly, find Christ through the way that we love and through the things that we teach and the things that we say. So God, as we come together as a church, help us to be able to use our gifts and our individuality well and celebrate our diversity, God, but also to leave our favoritism at the door and to create a place and a culture and a community that is filled with love and kindness, and gentleness, and all the things that you've called us to be as followers of Christ. So, Father, we just ask this morning that you speak through your word, and that you teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we're going to see that we can do to keep the church as a truly religious place, according to James, is that we should be constantly keeping the church as a place of refuge. We should keep the church as a place of refuge. Now, I think if you were to get average age of pastors across America, I probably fall on the younger side of that. I'm probably still fairly young as a pastor, but deep inside of me lives a very old curmudgeon pastor who's just grumpy about all kinds of things all the time and who desperately clings on to terminology. And I love old terminology, especially what I feel like is probably a very 1950s Southern Baptist terminology about things that happen in church. And so when things start to change over the last 20, 30 years, terminology in church life has changed. You've seen things go from being worship services and and church services to worship gatherings and worship experiences. And the little curmudgeon inside of me is like, I hate that terminology, but it's just me and my little curmudgeon guy inside of me. And it's really unnecessary. But one of the things that we have changed that, that 
I do really care about this particular terminology because I think it means something, is what we call the space that we come to meet in on Sundays. And so in some places, maybe it's an auditorium or a worship center or a, I don't know, the main room or the event hall or something along those lines. I really do think that the word sanctuary is a very important word when it comes to describing the place that we come together to meet. And I'll tell you why. Just using the Webster's Dictionary definition of the word sanctuary, the first two definitions, the first is this. A sanctuary is a place of refuge and protection. The second definition is that a sanctuary is a consecrated place, the most sacred part of a Christian church. And I think those are great definitions for what should be happening when we come together and meet for corporate worship. When we come together for our church services or worship gatherings on Sundays, they should be done in a place that is a place of refuge for anyone who would come in and a place that is holy and consecrated for the acts of worship that we offer up. I think it's a great phrase for what happens here, a great word for what we do inside of the sanctuary. But now James in chapter 2 describes for us this picture of two people entering into the church, entering into the sanctuary. And now visiting a church can be a very difficult thing. I haven't had to do it a lot over the course of my life, but I did get the opportunity about a year and a half ago or so to visit a church by myself. So I was on the way to a conference. There was a church where I'd you know, heard some sermons from the pastor before that met on a Sunday evening. And so I thought, you know what? I'm on my way up here to Louisville. I'm just going to swing through into this church and just go to this church service. And I have very much taken for granted what it feels like to visit a church service by yourself. And so if you're visiting here with us this morning, thank you because it horrified me. Because again, naturally inside, the little curmudgeon inside of me is also very introverted. He has a lot of problems. And so going into this space by myself, not knowing anybody around, there was was a lot of, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to sit. I didn't know who to talk to. Or if somebody talked to me, am I going to say something weird because I have a tendency to do that? All these things were going through my head. And so for these people, these two different individuals that James describes, there were probably a lot of feelings and emotions going in. Maybe feelings of inferiority, maybe feelings of uncertainty, maybe feelings of doubt on do I really want to put myself out in this vulnerable position and walk into this church gathering. But one of the feelings that both of those people should have had is a feeling of safety. You see, church might not always be comfortable. Because there are going to be times in in any church service when when God's word is preached that it's going to cut us down to the core. And the Holy Spirit's not only going to teach us, but sometimes he's going to convict us of things that are going on in our lives. And so there may certainly be times where church is not particularly comfortable, but church should always be a place that is safe. But in the scenario that James describes, it's very much not. He tells us, that two people come in to this church service. And they are two very different people. One man is wearing a gold ring and has these fine clothing on. And the other person is a poor man in shabby clothing. And James says that for the, the man in the nice clothes with the gold ring on his finger, they welcome him to the front. 
And they usher him in saying, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're a part of our assembly today. Please, you come and you take this seat on the front row. And you take this seat of honor because we are so excited for you to be here. But for the other man that comes in, they say, "Mm, you can just take the floor seat, please. And I think it's safe to open this example up. Because this would have been the main distinction in the community that James was living in. The people who have a lot of material wealth and the people who do not. But we can open this up to a wide variety of people. This person that gets the special attention doesn't necessarily have to be someone of material wealth. Maybe there's somebody that has a great deal of talent. Maybe it's somebody that we know has has musical abilities. And because that's such a highly prized thing in the church, we say, you know what? You come in and we want to use you and we have value for you. Maybe it's somebody who has a certain amount of power in the community. Maybe they're a mover and shaker in the community. So we can't say, you come in, you politician, or you mover and you shaker. You come in and have this nice seat because we want you to feel very important. Maybe it's somebody with prestige or charm or a certain level of celebrity. We can go on and on and on. But in this case, there is one person who seems outwardly desirable for the people of the church and one person who does not. And James says that they are treating these two people very differently. What James says next is pretty powerful. He says, you say to the man in the fine clothing, you sit over here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? James says, when you do that, What you are doing is taking a knife and cutting down the middle and dividing up the body of Christ that God has brought together. A few months ago, we talked about that through the book of Ephesians, and we saw this miraculous thing that God did through the gospel to bring people together from all different places and to make the church one body with one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He brought the church together and unified it. And now James is saying, when you do that, what you are doing is cutting apart what God has brought together. And in chapter 4, verse, the second half of the verse, he gets really personal. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Basically, James is saying here, when you make these distinctions between people in your congregation, who do you think you are? Do you think now that because you're a a church person and that you come to church a lot that you have the power or the ability or do you even think that now you are God? Do you think that you get to determine who has value in the kingdom of God and who does not? He says, no, that's not who you are. He says, when you do this, all you are are judges with evil thoughts. I'm not sure that there are too many descriptions of God's people in Scripture more condemning than this. There are some, but there are not many. This is a hard thing that James is saying to his people. And to me, it throws my mind to the parable of the persistent widow. And I love this parable, and I reference it a lot, I know, but the the parable of the persistent widow is about this widow who comes to this judge who is supposed to be able to unbiasedly make decisions and bring justice for people who are in need. And this widow comes, and she wants to have justice because she's been wrong, and the judge doesn't care. 
In fact, Jesus describes the judge as someone who doesn't fear God, nor does he respect people. And there seems to be a very close connection between the judge and the story of the persistent widow and what James is describing here. Because remember last week, James says that true religion that's pleasing to God is that we care for widows and orphans, that we care for those who are vulnerable and in need. But when we do this, that James is describing here in this story in chapter 2, we're failing at that. Not only are we making ourselves judges with evil thoughts, thinking that we can divide up what God has brought together, but we are not caring for the people who Jesus cared for. We're not caring for the people that James teaches us. It is our true religious actions when we care for those people. We have to remember that Jesus died to unify the body of Christ. That we don't just come together on Sundays for worship because we have the same thoughts and we have the same agreements and we share the same preferences and likes. This isn't a club that we come together because we have this common interest. We come together because we have been united by the blood of Christ. That Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice so that people who were once far off can be brought close together. People who were once enemies could become brothers and sisters in Christ. We see in the story of the gospel that Jesus put himself in danger under the hands of the Roman government so that we could have for ourselves a place that is a refuge for the broken to come into. And when we make these distinctions, we are taking all that work that Christ has done and we are throwing it out the door in the mud. I remember in the church that I grew up in, there was a senior adult pastor, and he would always do the welcome time. And he would ask visitors to remain seated, which I always felt like was kind of a weird thing to do because we'd have this get up and shake everybody's hand time. And we'd have visitors remain seated so you know where they are. <laughs> and people would be like shaking hands around them and reaching down to them. It was a very awkward posturing thing, but I always kind of appreciated what he said about his reasoning. He said, we're going to ask our visitors to remain seated at this time because the seat that you're sitting in is a seat of honor. That was pretty cool. Because that seat was a seat of honor not because of who was sitting there, but because someone was sitting there. And that anyone who came into that assembly, anyone who came in to worship Christ together in that place that morning was there because God had brought them there and that because we were a community, we were going to treat every single person with that honor and kindness. And that should be our desire as Redeeming Grace Community Church. To continue being a place where every seat in our facility, wherever our facility happens to be, is a seat of honor. A place where we welcome all and love all and give to everyone who enters an opportunity to hear the gospel and experience the love of Christ and to be transformed by the gospel and then to continue that love and that effort by being a place where people can grow in their faith, find their gifts, use their gifts, and be a vital part of the body of Christ. But to do that, we have to make sure to always be keeping the church as a place of refuge for the broken. The next thing that we should do is that we should recognize the gifts of all people. We should always recognize the gifts of all people. Now, we should always pay attention to what Scripture says, but I think especially when the Bible says, listen, we really need to pay attention. And in verse 5, James says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. 
Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now, I think one of the most harmful, harmless statements ever uttered in the Christian life, and I know this is true because these are things that I've said myself, is when we look at someone who maybe is a musician, an athlete, some, somebody with a lot of celebrity or prestige, if we look at that person and we say, oh, if only so-and-so would get saved, think about all the amazing things that they could do. And now usually we say that out of a very good place because we obviously want all people to trust in Christ and know the, the grace and mercy of God and the power of the gospel. But when we say that, what we're, what we're communicating is this is a person who has the power to be influential in the kingdom of God in a way that other people are not. And there's some danger in that philosophy. Because what we begin to do in our minds is to separate people based on what we think that they're able to do and say this person has a lot to offer the kingdom of God while this person might have something less to offer the kingdom of God. In James' example here, it's a rich person who the people would have thought, oh, this person can can bankroll everything that we do. The church won't have to struggle financially. The church won't have to to deal with anything because this person will be able to care for those in need and use their incredible wealth to, to do things that no one else could. And they see this person who is materially poor come in and they think, eh, not much to offer there. But James and Jesus present us with a much different reality. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And in the story of the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to know what it takes to have eternal life, of what it takes to come into the kingdom of God, Jesus confronts him with a reality that is too difficult. Jesus says, okay, now for you personally, just get rid of your stuff and come and follow me and and you're good, man. And the rich young ruler walks away sad and Jesus offers this really hard truth. And he says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And what this does is it takes the paradigm, especially of that ancient world, where you have the powerful and the rich and the people who could do anything they want and then those who were disadvantaged and couldn't take care of themselves. And Jesus says, you know what? In my economy and in my kingdom, everything is different. It doesn't matter what you have or what you have to offer because all you need is what I have. And now James reiterates that same truth in verse 5 by quoting the words of Jesus. He says, listen, brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? And what we see all through the New Testament is that the gospel is especially Good news to those who may lack material things, but who are often rich in faith. We see an example of how God sees things in the Old Testament, in the anointing of King David. Because looking back, when we think about David, we think about the latter parts of his life, whether it's David and Goliath and his triumph over over the Philistine army, or David as king and all the things that David is able to do as king. But we have to remember that David began as a shepherd who was so lacking in influence that when the prophet came to anoint the new king, his father Jesse brought out all the other sons but thought, 
you can keep the sheep, bud. There's no need for you to come out here. They're not going to be concerned with you. This is not really a place where you're going to be needed. And so he brings all of his other sons out and leaves David to tend to the sheep. But son after son after son, God says, nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. And finally, it does get to David. And God says, this is the one. And Samuel says, nope. (laughs) The prophet Samuel's like, God, I don't think you're right. I know you're the all-knowing God of the universe who created all things. I'm a prophet, so I have very good theology, so I understand all these things. But I have to take a time out here because I believe that you're wrong because this is a scrawny little shepherd. And that guy over there, he looks far more kingly. And so maybe you just made a mistake. Let's try this again. And God says, shh, Samuel, you might look at the outside. People might look at the outside appearance. But God says that he looks at the heart. You see, in God's economy, things work in a different way than they do in ours. God's priorities are very different than ours. And sometimes we allow our understanding of the world and our economy and our priorities to enter into the way that we think as a church. And what happens is we tend to think of people outside the church in one of two categories. People fall in the category, maybe there are people that can help the church, or maybe there are people that the church can help. And that's where we draw that dividing line. We look at somebody and we can immediately evaluate this, and this happens with pastors, this happens with church members, this happens with everybody. We look at someone and we put them in this category. Is this someone that can help the church, or is this someone that the church can help? But in reality, all people fall in both of those categories. See, there is no one that the church can't help, not because of the things that we can do as a church, but because as the church, we are charged with taking the gospel to the world. And as we go through every Sunday with our confession of sin, we are reminded that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and every single one of us need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what you have, it doesn't matter how much influence you have, it doesn't matter what sort of pull in the world that you think that you have or celebrity that you have, without Christ, we have nothing. And the church has Christ. And so there's not a single person outside of the church that doesn't need what the church has to offer. And so all people around us are people that the church can help. But also, every single person around us, as they hear and receive and trust in the gospel, are people that can help the church. We saw this in Ephesians with our small groups and with the short sermon series that we went through several months ago. That Jesus has gifted and equipped all of us. That when we trust in Christ for salvation, each one of us have gifts given by God's grace. And sure, some of those might be things that are easier to put on display, but none of those things are more important than the other. All of us are members of one body, and all people that trust in the gospel have the potential within them because of Christ to be able to help the church in a way that nobody else can. But still, we make those divisions. And I wonder what kind of harm we do as we make those decisions, whether knowingly or even unknowingly. I'm reading a book on plagues right now. Actually, I'm listening. I feel like I should clarify this and give a disclaimer. I'm listening to a book on plagues. I haven't decided yet if listening to a book counts the same as reading. But on my little card where I write down things that I read through the year, I count it. I do put a star 
not that, I don't know why I asterisk my own record book, but I do because I feel really guilty if I don't. But just so we all know, I'm listening to a book on plagues. If you listen to a book on plagues, I do not recommend listening to it while you eat lunch, which I've done several times, and it does make things taste a little funky. But in one chapter, the author is talking about the bubonic plague that swept through Europe. And she makes just kind of an offhanded remark about wondering how many influential, world-changing people died because of the plague before they were ever able to reach their potential. And that's a, that's a hard thing to think about in the process. What, what, who could have lived through the plague and, and maybe made great art or great music or had great jumps forward in science and philosophy and math and all these things? How different could our world have been if the plague had not? How much potential was lost? But I wonder how many churches have unknowingly hurt people and ultimately hurt themselves by missing out on the gifts and contributions that someone could offer but didn't because they were treated as less than or assumed to not have anything they could offer. As the church, it's our responsibility to recognize the dignity and agency and giftedness of all people. To recognize that all people need the gospel and that also once someone has received and trusted in the gospel, that the church needs that person and their gifts and their abilities and their skills. And any time we quash that or any time we put someone to the back because their gifts aren't as readily noticeable or they don't seem to have the potential as someone else, we're not only hurting that person, but we're hurting the church as well. And so we need to constantly recognize the gifts of all people. So we keep the church a place of refuge. We recognize the gifts of all people. And the final thing that we can do as a church that James tells us to be truly religious is that we never sell out. As a church, we're focused on never selling out. Now, I've loved music my whole life. And I've always been one of those really obnoxious people who likes to listen to music that nobody else listens to so that I can say, oh, I listen to music that no one else listens to. And it's very obnoxious. And I think I'm getting better, but it still lives inside of me, inside that curmudgeon introverted person that, that lives down inside of me. I'm just going to blame it all on him so I don't have to take personal responsibility for it this morning. But there may have been times where my ego was inflated because I listened to a band or an artist or someone that no one else listened to. I don't know why I'm being so confessional this morning. It's winter and spring all at the same time, so it's just a weird day. But I know, especially in some of the indie music scenes, that one of the things, one of the worst things that can be said about you as a musician or an artist or a band is that you've sold out or that you've gone mainstream. Now, I am here to tell you right now, I have no issues selling out musically. I find no joy in modern country music. I don't enjoy it. I don't listen to it. I don't like it. I don't care anything about Sweet Tea. I don't particularly care anything about the Georgia Bulldogs. I don't really care anything about the Laser Show. But if you came to me today and said, Chris, I would like you to write me a modern country song, and I need you to talk about the Laser Show and drinking sweet tea at the Laser Show while talking about the Georgia Bulldogs, I will immediately pick up my guitar, go home, and write you that song and take your fat stack of cash. Because I will sell out musically in a heartbeat. I have no qualms whatsoever. James is talking 
about a very different kind of sellout. James is talking about a sellout of a much more dangerous variety. And this is a really difficult passage of scripture to read because James is asking a very hard question. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man and are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court and are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Right there in verse 6, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. And I don't know what the list of words are that should never be used to describe a church, but I assure you that dishonoring someone, that's on that list. That should never be the way that someone feels when they come into a church that they have been dishonored. But that's exactly what happened in this scenario that James is describing. And so instead, what they have decided to do is to side with and exalt their oppressors. Now again, this seems like a very harsh thing, and this isn't just a condemnation about anybody who happens to have material wealth. In this first century, especially around the the culture that James was living in, what happened a lot of times is some of the more wealthy people in society would actually bring, or as James says, drag people into court that had less than they did. And they would use the court systems to their advantage because they had the money and power and education to do so. And they would use the court system to steal land and property from other people. And so James is saying, these are the same people who are oppressing you. Because we have to remember when we're reading this letter that James is not writing necessarily to particularly influential or wealthy people. He's writing to Jewish Christian converts spread out around Jerusalem and around the region. And so these weren't the movers and shakers in society. And so he's saying these these wealthy people that you want to welcome in and celebrate, they're the same people who are treating you poorly and oppressing you at every turn. He's saying what's happening in your heads? What is wrong with you that you would decide to sell out to a worldview that would literally sell you out in a heartbeat if they had the opportunity? And there are, again, a variety of modern examples of this kind of mentality creeping into the churches. We see this happen with churches who are romanced by politics and politicians. Churches who become more focused on business endeavors than on the ministry of the gospel. It's a really easy time now to find celebrity inside of the church. Churches can be influenced and swayed by status and trying to be a church that has status and influence in the world, and even cultural pressures of allowing the culture around us to tell us what is and what isn't acceptable in the life of our church and in the life of our worship. But we have to remember that the church is not a political organization. It's not a business, and it's not an attraction. What tends to happen is when the church finds itself enmeshed in all those different areas is when the church gets super enmeshed in politics and the state, the state tends to not get very churchy. The church tends to get a lot more statey. And if the church becomes more focused on on capital and, and gaining as much power and influence as they can and becoming more of a business endeavor than a place of worship, then the church is willing to be sold out to whatever the highest bidder may be. If we're worried about being a church that people recognize with influence and celebrity and fame, and we want to grow as big as we can and as fast as we can, what we'll find is that we'll become beholden to keeping up appearances 
and trying to make everyone happy and draw in as many people as we can, more so than doing the work of the gospel and preaching the word of the gospel. And if we're driven by the culture instead of by the word of God, we're constantly going to be pulled from the left and the right and never have any sense of what's up and what's down. We have to remember that the church has no master but Christ. And that should be obvious in the way that we live. That we are only beholden to the word of God and that we will follow the, the laws and the governance of man so long as they don't conflict with the laws and the governance of God because Christ is our king and Jesus is the head of the church. And not to allow anyone else to have so much influence or authority over the church that we would take the rightful crown of Christ as king and put it on anyone or anything else. And so our lives should declare that. The way that we think, the way that we speak should constantly declare that. The way that we worship in the midst of our church gatherings should focus on that. But also, it should be readily understandable that that's who we are by the way that we welcome guests. That no matter who comes into our door, we don't treat them the way that the world around us treats them. We treat them the way the gospel commands us and compels us to treat them treating every person, no matter what they have or what they don't, no matter what they look like, no matter where they come from, no matter their background or anything, when they walk into our doors, we treat those people with the same dignity and kindness and respect and love that the gospel has given to us and that Christ offers to us day after day. As Adam said, when we were reminded that the mercies of God are new every single morning, our mercy and our kindness that we extend to the visitors and to the strangers and the people that come into our community should be new every single morning and given freely to all without bias or without preference. So as I said before, the church is a beautiful and unique place. The church is a diverse and religious place. But we need to always be sure That we're not religious in the sense that we think that we're just doing the right things or acting very churchy, but that we are religious according to the gospel, according to what scripture teaches us to be. And that means that we have to be constantly checking our prejudice and our favoritism at the door to recognize that God loves us without preference or bias or without condition and that we should do the same for anyone who comes into our assembly. The church, while at times may be uncomfortable for each and every one of us, should always be a place that is safe, life-giving, transforming, encouraging, and sanctifying. And the only way that this can happen, the only way that we can be that kind of place is if we are truly religious according to the word of God by keeping the gospel central to all we do, and through that, making sure the church is always a place of refuge that we recognize the gifts and agency and dignity of all people who were created in the image of God by a loving God, and that we recognize that we can never sell out as a church, that we should always be focused on that mission, on making disciples of all nations, of loving the poor and the needy, the widows and the orphans, the rich and the famous and everybody in between to share that love of Christ unconditionally no matter what at all times. 
And so as we have our entire existence, let's continue to commit to be that kind of church where the redeeming grace of God is evident to everyone who enters in to our doors.